Welcome back to Public Domain Playhouse. Thank you for joining us for Chapter 3 of The Call of the Wild, written by Jack London. Chapter 3 is called The Dominant Primordial Beast. But first I'd like to do a little bit of a recap um, from Chapter 2. This chapter name is actually pretty self-explanatory, especially if you have been following along with chapter Sold off, put onto a slow boat to Seattle, where he is eventually brought to a man in a red sweater. This man actually is the first instance of Buck learning what will become the law of Club and Fang. This man actually has a club and an axe, which I guess to a human being is as good as a fang. So he basically beats Buck into submission until Buck won't get up anymore and fight and realizes that it's pointless. And afterwards, he actually gives him some meat and pats him on the head, says good boy. And from there, he's sold to two Frenchmen, Francois and Perrault, who take Buck up to the Yukon. Remember, this is 1897, I believe it is. I believe that's the year that this is set. It's in the 1890s when the gold rush is happening up north. So that's why people want strong dogs, so that they can put them on sled team. Buck does eventually get to the Yukon, where he experiences snow for the first time. And that's kind of what the start of the last chapter was. He has no idea what it is. He's been living his whole life in California. And uh, like I said, he doesn't know quite what to expect. So Buck is actually a fast learner, and that's one of the reasons. And he's also a big dog. He's a St. Bernard. He's a half St. Bernard, half um, Newfoundland, I want to say. He's, uh, he's kind of a mixed breed, but he's a big dog. He's an alpha dog, and that's why they really wanted him. And that's why Buck actually brought a premium price. They come to the frontier of a place called Daiya, Alaska. Daiya, D-Y-E-A. Maybe I should just say Daya. Daya, Alaska, where Buck um, learns more about this law of club and fang. Unfortunately, his next experience, which is really teaching him about the fang part, is when a good-natured dog named Curly is ripped to shreds by an entire pack of huskies. She gets into a fight with the lead dog and the lead dog rips her throat open. After the circle of dogs tears her apart, Francois and Perot come out swinging axes and clubs to break up the scrum and they get him away from Curly but not before it's too late. She's dead. This causes Buck obviously to have trouble sleeping and he also basically learns that there's no fair play in this uncivilized world. So that dog that first got into a fight with Curly, the white dog named Spitz, seems amused by Curly's death. Buck learns to hate Spitz with, quote, a bitter and deathless hatred. So London is using some literary devices that were quite popular around the turn of the 20th century or the beginning of the 20th century, where they humanized wild animals. Nobody knows for sure if a dog feels hate or lust or envy. We can know that they do learn. I mean, we know that they have the capacity for thought, obviously. But as far as a literary device goes, London really, really makes Buck seem like he's human. And that's one of the ways that it draws people into these kinds of stories. So soon after Curly's death, Francois harnesses Buck up for the first time to a dog sled. I believe Dave and Spitz. Spitz is the other alpha dog. So you can imagine what's going to happen when two alpha dogs get together. And Dave is another well-seasoned sled dog. So Buck pulls the sled to transport firewood at the very start. And then he finds that work to be really demeaning because he saw horses being harnessed up and put to work back on the farm in California. And that's really his only frame of reference. Buck quickly learns though how to work efficiently with the other dogs in the task. And part of the reason is, is that the other dogs on the team actually use fangs and biting to correct bad actions when it comes to the sled dog teams. 
Francois and Perrault add more dogs to the team eventually, including a good-natured dog named Billy, a sullen dog named Joe, and Saul Lex. And like Dave, Saul Lex seems to have no interest in anything, anything that's going on around him at all. He just wants to be left alone. So once again, Buck is having a hard time sleeping because of the harsh cold this time. Also, he, if you recall, if you listen to Chapter 2, Buck has a hard time finding the dogs. They've just all kind of disappeared at some point. He has no idea where they are. So he wanders around the camp for a little while, confused. And eventually, he comes to a place where his paws start to sink into some soft snow. And he feels something wriggling underneath him. He jumps back. He's startled. And he starts growling in his wolf-like growl. But underneath there, he finds Billy, curled up under the snow like a snug ball. Billy is placating and basically teaches Buck without actually teaching him. Buck learns by finding Billy that they dig a hole into the ground, crawl in there, and their own body heat will keep them warm. And that's the best way that they can sleep in this bitter cold of the Yukon. So Buck does. He digs himself a hole, he curls up inside it, and he falls asleep. But the next morning when he wakes up, he feels the snow pressing in around him, and he thinks that he's caught into a trap. So London is actually identifying with his base instincts here. And what do animals do that get caught into a trap? They kind of freak out. So terrified, Buck leaps up into the air, pushing himself out of the snow into the crisp morning air, and realizes that he was not trapped. And this actually makes Francois admire Buck, at how quickly he learns it's the best way to sleep in that frigid, wild Yukon cold. Eventually, the French-Canadian guys add three more Huskies, making it a total team of nine. And the dog's job is to transport dispatches via sled. Actually, I guess that's the Canadian's job. They are carrying basically the mail. Buck notices that when Dave and Saul Lex, the two dogs that seem to want to have nothing to do with anything, but when they get hooked up to a harness and hooked up to the sled, they change their demeanor completely. They become alert and active. Pulling a sled, I guess, seems to be what these dogs live for, basically. So the Canadians place Spitz at the head of the team. He is the alpha dog in the lead position. As the dogs pull the sleds in a single file line, Dave and Saul Lex once again use their sharp teeth to correct Buck when he does something wrong. During the day, the dogs pull the sled over glaciers and deep snow drifts and vacant volcanoes, empty and desolate, filled with snow. Usually, Pearl goes on ahead of the sled and Francois rides in the vehicle, guiding it. So, to wrap up Chapter 2, The Law of Club and Fang, there's a couple of important things to keep in mind as far as the literary devices that London uses and the importance of this piece of literature in our even modern-day lexicon over a hundred years after this thing was written. Throughout Chapter 2, Buck begins to adjust to a new ethic. Okay, This requires basically intense self-reliance, whereas once before he had been part of a manor estate. The old Buck was a creature of civilization on that estate. He's one who would die, quote, for a moral consideration. But the new Buck is willing to steal food from his masters, something he would never have done before. This transformation reflects the influence of Darwinian natural science and philosophy on Jack London's novel, right? Charles Darwin, whose 1859 book, The Origin of Species, was published basically less than 50 years before this and was part of London's lexicon at the time. No doubt, hotly talked about for those first 50 years, much less the next 100 years, because we're still talking about The Origin of Species. But in that book, Darwin posited that a natural world defined by fierce competition for scarce resources or the survival of the fittest was the law of life and the engine that drove the evolutionary process. In London's The Call of the Wild, Buck must adjust to this bleak, cruel vision of animal existence as he realizes that the moral concerns of human civilization have no place 
in a kill-or-be-killed world of the wild. What order does exist in this world is instead the order of the pack. We observe this in the way of other members of the team who help train Buck as a sled dog. And even within the pack, rivalry surfaces. It's part of an emerging antagonism between Spitz and Buck that demonstrates this very aspect of the law of Club and Fang. But London emphasizes that Buck does not merely learn the Darwinian lessons. They're already a part of his deep animal history. They're part of his hereditary, his heredity. Buck may be a creature reared in the comfort of the sunny Santa Clara Valley in California, a domestic pet animal, and a descendant of domestic pets. But his species roamed wild long before men ever tamed it. As the novel progresses, too, we're going to see that Buck taps into his ancestral memory even more and uncovers hidden primal instincts for competition and survival. This was kind of reflective when Buck was trapped underneath the snow or felt like he was trapped and thrashed his way out. So, as Buck taps into this ancestral memory more and more and and uncovers hidden primal instincts for competition and survival, the term for this process is atavism the reappearance in an animal of the traits that defined its remote ancestors. Atavism is the key to Buck's success in the wild because he's able to access, quote, in vague ways, the youth of the breed, the time of wild dogs ranged in packs through the primeval forest and killed their meat as they ran it down, end quote. London suggests that the primitive instincts do not die in the civilized world. Rather, they go into a kind of hibernation. Such a reawakening of instincts certainly occurs in dogs, but the novel suggests that it also occurs in men. Given the right circumstances, any being can return, like Buck, to the primitive, instinctual life of his ancestors. And so that's where we are today, now leading into chapter three, The Dominant Primordial Beast. So, without further ado, let's get to it, shall we? Chapter three. The dominant primordial beast was strong in Buck, and under the fierce conditions of trail life, it grew and grew. Yet it was a secret growth. His newborn cunning gave him poise and control. He was too busy adjusting himself to the new life to feel at ease, and not only did he not pick fights, but he avoided them whenever possible. A certain deliberateness characterized his attitude. He was not prone to rashness and precipitate action. And in the bitter hatred between him and Spitz, he betrayed no impatience, shunned all offensive acts. On the other hand, possibly because he divined in Buck a dangerous rival, Spitz never lost an opportunity of showing his teeth. He even went out of his way to bully Buck, striving constantly to start the fight, which could only end in the death of one or the other. Early in the trip, this might have taken place had it not been for an unwanted accident. At the end of this day, they made a bleak and miserable camp on the shore of Lake Labarge. Driving snow, a wind that cut like a white-hot knife, and darkness had forced them to grope for a camping place. They could hardly have fared worse. At their backs rose a perpendicular wall of rock, and Perrault and Francois were compelled to make their fire and spread their sleeping robes on the ice of the lake itself. The tent they had discarded at Yea in order to travel light. A few sticks of driftwood furnished them with a fire that thawed down through the ice and left them to eat supper in the dark. 
Close in under the sheltering rock, Buck made his nest. So snug and warm was it that he was loath to leave it when Francois distributed the fish, which he had first thawed over the fire. But when Buck finished his ration and returned, he found his nest occupied. A warning snarl told him that the trespasser was Spitz. Till now, Buck had avoided trouble with his enemy, but this was too much. The beast in him roared. He sprang upon Spitz with a fury that surprised them both, and Spitz particularly, for his whole experience with Buck had gone to teach him that his rival was an unusually timid dog who managed to hold his own only because of his great weight and size. Francois was surprised too, when they shot out in a tangle from the disrupted nest and he divined the cause of the trouble. Ah! Ah! He cried to Buck. Give it to him, Gar! Give it to him, the dirty thief! Spitz was equally willing. He was crying with sheer rage and eagerness as he circled back and forth for a chance to spring in. Buck was no less eager and no less cautious, and he likewise circled back and forth for the advantage. But it was then that the unexpected happened, the thing which projected their struggle for supremacy far into the future, past many a weary mile of trail and toil. An oath from Peral, the resounding impact of a club upon a bony frame, and a shrill yelp of pain heralded the breaking forth of pandemonium. The camp was suddenly discovered to be alive with skulking furry forms starving huskies, four or five score of them, who had scented the camp from some Indian village. They had crept in while Buck and Spitz were fighting, and when the two men sprang upon them with stout clubs, they showed their teeth and fought back. They were crazed by the smell of food. Peral found one with head buried in the grub box. His club landed heavily on the gaunt ribs, and the grub box was capsized on the ground. On the instant, a score of the famished brutes were scrambling for the bread and bacon. The clubs fell upon them unheeded. They yelped and howled under the rain of blows, but struggled nonetheless madly till the last crumb had been devoured. In the meantime, the astonished teen dogs had burst out of their nests, only to be set upon by the fierce invaders. Never had Buck seen such dogs. It seemed as though their bones would burst through their skins. They were mere skeletons, draped loosely in draggled hides, with blazing eyes and slavered fangs. But the hunger madness made them terrified, irresistible. There was no opposing them. The team dogs were swept back against the cliff at the first onset. Buck was beset by three huskies, and in a trice, his head and shoulders were ripped and slashed. The din was frightful. Billy was crying as usual. Dave and Saul Lex, dripping blood from a score of wounds, were fighting bravely side by side. Joe was snapping like a demon. Once his teeth closed on the foreleg of a husky, and he crunched down through the bone. Pike, the malingerer, leapt upon the crippled animal, breaking its neck with a quick flash of teeth and a jerk. Buck got a frothing adversary by the throat and was sprayed with blood when his teeth sank through the jugular. The warm taste of it in his mouth goaded him into greater fierceness. He flung himself upon another and at the same time felt teeth sink into his own throat. It was Spitz, treacherously attacking from the side. Peral and Francois, having cleaned out their part of the camp, hurried to save their sled dogs. The wild wave of famished beasts rolled back before them, and Buck shook himself free. But it was only for a moment. The two men were compelled to run back to save the grub upon which the huskies returned to attack on the team. 
Billy, terrified into bravery, sprang through the savage circle and fled away over the ice. Pike and Dub followed on his heels and the rest of the team behind. As Buck drew himself together to spring after them, out of the tail of his eye he saw Spitz rush upon him with the evident intention of overthrowing him. Once off his feet and under the mass of huskies, there was no hope for him. But he braced himself to the shock of Spitz's charge, then joined the flight out on the lake. Later, the nine team dogs gathered together and sought shelter in the forest. Though unpursued, they were in a sorry plight. There was not one who was not wounded in four or five places, while some were wounded grievously. Dub was badly injured in a hind leg. Dolly, the last husky added to the team at Yea, had a badly torn throat. Joe had lost an eye, while Billy, the good-natured with an ear chewed and rent to ribbons, cried and whimpered throughout the night. At daybreak, they limped warily back to camp to find the marauders gone and the two men in bad tempers. Fully half their grub supply was gone. The huskies had chewed through the sled lashings and canvas coverings. In fact, nothing, no matter how remotely eatable, had escaped them. They had eaten a pair of Peral's moosehide moccasins, chunks out of the leather traces, and even two feet of lash from the end of Francoise's whip. He broke from a mournful contemplation of it to look over his wounded dogs. Ah, my friends... He said softly, maybe it make you mad dog, those many bites. Maybe all mad dog, sacredam. What do you think, April? The courier shook his head dubiously. With 400 miles of trail still between him and Dawson, he could ill afford to have madness break out among his dogs. Two hours of cursing and exertion got the harness into shape, and the wound-stiffened team was underway, struggling painful over the hardest part of the trail they had yet encountered, and for that matter, the hardest between them and Dawson. The 30-mile river was wide open. Its wild water defied the frost, and it was in the eddies only and in the quiet places that the ice held at all. Six days of exhausting toil were required to cover those thirty terrible miles, and terrible they were, for every foot of them was accompanied at the risk of life to dog and man. A dozen times, Perot, nosing the way, broke through the ice bridges, being oh. saved by the long pole he carried, which he so held that it fell each time across the hole made by his body. But a cold snap was on, the thermometer registering 50 below zero, and each time he broke through, he was compelled for very life to build a fire and dry his garments. Nothing daunted him. It was because nothing daunted him that he had been chosen for government courier. He took all manner of risks, resolutely thrusting his little weazened face into the frost, and struggling on from dim dawn to dark. He skirted the frowning shores on rim ice that bent and crackled underfoot, and upon which they dared not halt. Once the sled broke through with Dave and Buck, and they were half frozen and all but drowned by the time they were dragged out. The usual fire was necessary to save them. They were coated solidly with ice, and the two men kept them on the run around the fire, sweating and thawing, so close that they were singed by the flames. At another time, Spitz went through, dragging the whole team after him up the buck, who strained backward with all his strength, his forepaws on the slippery edge and the ice quivering and snapping all around. But behind him was Dave, likewise straining backward. And behind the sled was Francois, pulling till his tendons cracked. Again, the rim ice broke away before and behind, and there was no escape except up the cliff. 
Perrault scaled it by miracle. While Francois prayed for just that miracle, and with every thong and sled lashing and the last bit of harness rove into the long rope, the dogs were hoisted, one by one, to the cliff crest. Francois came up last, after the sled and load. Then came the search for a place to descend, which descent was ultimately made by the aid of the rope, and night found them back on the river with a quarter of a mile to the day's credit. By the time they made the Hutaliqua and good ice, Buck was played out. The rest of the dogs were in like condition, but Peral, to make up lost time, pushed them late and early. The first day they covered 35 miles to the big salmon, the next day 35 more to the little salmon, the third day 40 miles, which brought them well up toward the five fingers. Buck's feet were not so compact and hard as the feet of the huskies. His had softened during the many generations since the day his last wild ancestor was tamed by a cave dweller or river man. All day long he limped in agony, and camp once made lay down like a dead dog. Hungry as he was, he would not move to receive his ration of fish, which Francois had to bring to him. Also, the dog driver rubbed Buck's feet for half an hour each night after supper and sacrificed the tops of his own moccasins to make four moccasins for Buck. This was a great relief, and Buck caused even the weazened face of Peral to twist itself into a grin one morning when Francois forgot the moccasins and Buck lay on his back, his four feet waving appealingly in the air, and refused to budge without them. Later, his feet grew hard to the trail, and the worn-out footgear was thrown away. At the Pelly one morning, as they were harnessing up, Dolly, who had never been conspicuous for anything, went suddenly mad. She announced her condition by a long, heartbreaking wolf howl that sent every dog bristling with fear then sprang straight for Buck. He had never seen a dog go mad, nor did he have any reason to fear madness. Yet he knew that here was horror, and fled away from it in a panic. Straight away he raced with Dolly, panting and frothing, one leap behind, nor could she gain on him, so great was his terror, nor could he leave her, so great was her madness. He plunged through the wooded breast of the island, flew down to the lower end, crossed the back channel filled with rough ice to another island, gained a third island, curved back to the main river, and in desperation started to cross it. And all the time, though he did not look, he could hear her snarling just one leap behind. Francois called to him a quarter of a mile away, and he doubled back, still one leap ahead, gasping painfully for air and putting all his faith in that Francois would save him. The dog driver held the axe poised in his hand, and as Buck shot past him, the axe crashed down upon Mad Dolly's head. Buck staggered over against the sled, exhausted, sobbing for breath, helpless. This was Spitz's opportunity. He sprang upon Buck, and twice his teeth sank into his unresisting foe and ripped and tore the flesh to the bone. Then Francois's lash descended, and Buck had the satisfaction of watching Spitz receive the worst whipping as yet administered to any of the team. One devil that Spitz, remarked Perot. Some damn day, him kill that Buck. That buck, two devils, was Francois's rejoinder. All the time I watch that buck, I know for sure. Listen, some damn fine day him get mad like hell, and then him chew that spits all up and spit him out on the snow. Sure I know. From then on, it was war between them. 
Spitz, as lead dog and acknowledged master of the team, felt his supremacy threatened by this strange Southland dog. And strange Buck was to him, for of the many Southland dogs he had known, not one had shown up worthily in camp and on trail. They were all too soft, dying under the toil, the frost, and starvation. Buck was the exception. He alone endured and prospered, matching the husky in strength, savagery, and cunning. Then he was a masterful dog, and what made him dangerous was the fact that the club of the man in the red sweater had knocked all blind pluck and rashness out of his desire for mastery. He was preeminently cunning and could bide his time with a patience that was nothing less than primitive. It was inevitable that the clash for leadership should come. Buck wanted it. He wanted it because it was his nature, because he had been gripped tight by that nameless, incomprehensible pride of the trail and trace, that pride which holds dogs in the toil to the last gasp, which lures them to die joyfully in the harness and breaks their hearts if they are cut out of the harness. This was the pride of Dave as wheel dog, of Saul Lex as he pulled with all his strength. The pride that laid hold of them at the break of camp, transforming them from sour and sullen brutes into straining, eager, ambitious creatures. The pride that spurred them all day and dropped them at pitch of camp at night, letting them fall back into gloomy unrest and discontent. This was the pride that bore up Spitz and made him thrash the sled dogs who blundered and shirked in the traces or hid away at harness up time in the morning. Likewise, it was this pride that made him fear Buck as a possible lead dog. And this was Buck's pride, too. He openly threatened the other's leadership. He came between him and the shirks he should have punished. And he did it deliberately. One night, there was a heavy snowfall. And in the morning, Pike, the malingerer, did not appear. He was securely hidden in his nest under a foot of snow. Francois called him and sought <sighs> him in vain. Spitz was wild with wrath. He raged through the camp, smelling and digging in every likely place, snarling so frightfully that Pike heard and shivered in his hiding place. But when he was at last unearthed and Spitz flew at him to punish him, Buck flew with equal rage in between. So unexpected was it and so shrewdly managed that Spitz was hurled backward and off his feet. Pike, who had been trembling abjectly, took heart at this open mutiny and sprang upon his overthrown leader. Buck, to whom fair play was a forgotten code, likewise sprang upon Spitz. But Francois, chuckling at the incident while unswerving in the administration of justice, brought his lash down upon Buck with all his might. This failed to drive Buck from his prostate rival, and the butt of the whip was brought into play. Half stunned by the blow, Buck was knocked backward, and the lash laid upon him again and again, while Spitz soundly punished the many times offending Pike. In the days that followed, as Dawson grew closer and closer, Buck still continued to interfere between Spitz and the culprits. But he did it craftily when Francois was not around. With the covert mutiny of Buck, a general insubordination sprang up and increased. Dave and Saul Lex were unaffected, but the rest of the team went from bad to worse. Things no longer went right. There was continual bickering and jangling. Trouble was always afoot, and at the bottom of it was Buck. He kept Francois busy, for the dog driver was in constant apprehension of the life and death struggle between the two, which he knew must take place sooner or later. And on more than one night, 
The sounds of quarreling and strife among the other dogs turned him out of his sleeping robe, fearful that Buck and Spitz were at it. But the opportunity did not present itself, and they pulled into Dawson one dreary afternoon with the great fight still to come. Here were many men and countless dogs, and Buck found them all at work. It seemed the ordained order of things that dogs should work. All day they swung up and down the main street in long teams, and in the night their jingling bells still went by. They hauled cabin logs and firewood, freighted up to the mines, and did all manner of work that horses did in the Santa Clara Valley. Here and there, Buck met Southland dogs, but in the main, they were wild wolf husky breed. Every night, regularly at nine, at twelve, and three, they lifted a nocturnal song, a weird and eerie chant in which it was Buck's delight to join. With the aurora borealis flaming coldly overhead, or the stars leaping in the frost dance, and the land numb and frozen under its pall of snow, this song of the huskies might have been the defiance of life, only it was pitched in minor key, with long-drawn wailings and half-sobs, and was more the pleading of life, the articulate travail of existence. It was an old song, old as the breed itself, one of the first songs of the younger world in a day when songs were sad. It was invested with the woe of unnumbered generations, this plaint by which Buck was so strangely stirred. When he moaned and sobbed, it was with the pain of living that was of old the pain of his wild fathers and the fear and mystery of the cold and dark that was to them fear and mystery. And that he should be stirred by it marked the completeness with which he harked back through the ages of fire and roof to the raw beginnings of life in the howling ages. Seven days from the time they pulled into Dawson, they dropped down the steep bank by the barracks to the Yukon Trail and pulled for yea and salt water. Parole was carrying dispatches, if anything more urgent than those he had brought in. Also, the travel pride had gripped him, and he purposed to make the record trip of the year. Several things favored him in this. The week's rest had recuperated the dogs and put them in thorough trim. The trail they had broken into the country was packed hard by later journeyers. And further, the police had arranged in two or three places deposits of grub for dog and man, and he was traveling light. They made 60 mile, which is a 50 mile run, on the first day. And the second day saw them booming up the Yukon, well on their way to Pelly. But such splendid running was achieved not without great trouble and vexation on the part of Francois. The insidious revolt, which was led by Buck, had destroyed the solidarity of the team. It no longer was one dog leaping in the traces. The encouragement Buck gave the rebels led them into all kinds of petty misdemeanors. No more was Spitz a leader greatly to be feared. The old awe departed, and they grew equal to challenging his authority. Pike robbed him of half a fish one night and gulped it down under the protection of Buck. Another night, Dub and Joe fought Spitz and made him forego the punishment they deserved. And even Bill Lee, the good-natured, was less good-natured and whined not half so placatingly as in former days. Buck never came near Spitz without snarling and bristling menacingly. In fact, his conduct approached that of a bully, and he was given to swaggering up and down before Spitz's very nose. The breaking down of discipline likewise affected the dogs in their relations with one another. 
They quarreled and bickered more than ever among themselves, till at times the camp was a howling bedlam. Dave and Saul Lex alone were unaltered, though they were made irritable by the unending squabbling. Francois swore strange barbarous oaths and stamped the snow in futile rage and tore his hair. His lash was always singing among the dogs, but it was of a small avail. Directly his back was turned, they were at it again. He backed up Spitz with his whip, while Buck backed up the remainder of the team. Francois knew he was behind all the trouble, and Buck knew he knew. But Buck was too clever ever again to be caught red-handed. He worked faithfully in the harness, for the toil had become a delight to him. Yet it was a greater delight, slyly, to precipitate a fight amongst his mates and tangle the traces. At the mouth of Taquina, one night after supper, Dub turned up a snowshoe rabbit, blundered it, and missed. In a second, the whole team was in full cry. A hundred yards away was a camp of the Northwest Police, with fifty dogs, huskies all, who joined the chase. The rabbit sped down the river, turned off into a small creek, up the frozen bed of which it held steadily. It ran lightly on the surface of the snow, while the dogs plowed through by main strength. Buck led the pack, sixty strong, around bend after bend, but he could not gain. He lay down low to the race, whining eagerly, his splendid body flashing forward, leap by leap, in the wan white moonlight, and leap by leap, like some pale frost wraith, the snowshoe rabbit flashed on ahead. All that stirring of old instincts, which at stated periods drives men out from the sounding cities to forest and plain to kill things by chemically propelled leaden pellets, the bloodlust, the joy to kill. All this was Buck's, only it was infinitely more intimate. He was ranging at the head of the pack, running the wild thing down, the living heat, to kill with his own teeth and wash his muzzle to the eyes in warm blood. There is an ecstasy that marks the summit of life and beyond which life cannot rise. And such is the paradox of living. This ecstasy comes when one is most alive, and it comes as a complete forgetfulness that one is alive. This ecstasy, this forgetfulness of living, comes to the artist, caught up and out of himself in the sheet of flame. It comes to the soldier, war-mad on a stricken field and refusing quarter, and it came to Buck, leading the pack, sounding the old wolf cry, straining after the food that was alive and that fled swiftly before him through the moonlight. He was sounding the deeps of his nature and of the parts of his nature that were deeper than he, going back into the womb of time. He was mastered by the sheer surging of life, the tidal wave of being, the perfect joy of each separate muscle, joint, and sinew, in that it was everything that was not death, that it was a glow and rampant, expressing itself in movement, flying exultantly under the stars and over the face of dead matter that did not move. But Spitz, cold and calculating even in his supreme moods, left the pack and cut across the narrow neck of land where the creek made a long bend around. Buck did not notice, and as he rounded the bend, the frost wraith of a rabbit still flitting before him, he saw another and larger frost wraith leap from the overhanging bank into the immediate path of the rabbit. It was Spitz. The rabbit could not turn, and as the white teeth broke its back in midair, it shrieked as loudly as a stricken man may shriek. At sound of this, the cry of life plunging down from life's apex in the grip of death, the full packet Buck's heels raised a hell's chorus of delight. Buck did not cry out. He did not check himself, but drove in upon Spitz, shoulder to shoulder, 
so hard that he missed the throat. They rolled over and over in the powdery snow. Spitz gained his feet almost as though he had not been overthrown, slashing Buck down the shoulder and leaping clear. Twice his teeth clipped together, like the steel jaws of a trap, as he backed away for better footing, with lean and lifting lips that writhed and snarled. In a flash, Buck knew it. The time had come. It was to the death. As they circled about, snarling, ears laid back, keenly watchful for the advantage, the scene came to Buck with a sense of familiarity. He seemed to remember it all. The white woods, and earth, and moonlight, and the thrill of battle. Over the whiteness and silence brooded a ghostly tone. There was not the faintest whisper of air. Nothing moved. Not a leaf quivered the visible breaths of the dogs rising slowly and lingering in the frosty air. They had made short work of the snowshoe rabbit, these dogs that were ill-tamed wolves, and they were now drawn up in an expectant circle. They too were silent, their eyes only gleaming and their breaths drifting slowly upward. To Buck, it was nothing new or strange, the scene of old time. It was as though it had always been the wanted way of things. Spitz was a practiced fighter, from Spitzbergen through the Arctic and across Canada and the Barrens. He had held his own with all manner of dogs and achieved to mastery over them. Bitter rage was his, but never blind rage. In passion to rend and destroy, he never forgot that his enemy was in like passion to rend and destroy. He never rushed till he was prepared to receive a rush, never attacked till he had first defended that attack. In vain, Buck strove to sink his teeth in the neck of the big white dog. Wherever his fangs struck with a softer flesh, they were countered by the fangs of Spitz. Fang clashed fang, and lips were cut and bleeding, but Buck could not penetrate his enemy's guard. Then he warmed up an envelope spits in a whirlwind of rushes. Time and time again he tried for the snow-white throat, where life bubbled near to the surface, and each time and every time Spitz slashed him and got away. Then Buck took to rushing, as though for the throat, when suddenly... Drawing back his head and curving in from the side, he would drive his shoulder at the shoulder of Spitz, as a ram by which to overthrow him. But instead, Buck's shoulder was slashed down each time as Spitz leapt lightly away. Spitz was untouched, while Buck was streaming with blood and panting hard. The fight was growing desperate and all the while the silent and wolfish circle waited to finish off whichever dog went down. As Buck grew winded, Spitz took to rushing, and he kept him staggering for footing. Once Buck went over and the whole circle of sixty dogs started up, but he recovered himself, almost in midair, and the circle sank down again and waited. But Buck possessed a quality that made for greatness, imagination. He fought by instinct, but he could fight by head as well he rushed, as though attempting the old shoulder trick, but at the last instant swept low to the snow and in. His teeth closed on Spitz's left foreleg. There was a crunch of breaking bone, and the white dog faced him on three legs. Thrice he tried to knock him over, then repeated the trick and broke the right foreleg. Despite the pain and helplessness, Spitz struggled madly to keep up. He saw the silent circle with gleaming eyes, lolling tongues, and silvery breaths drifting upward, closing in upon him as he had seen similar circles close in upon beaten antagonists in the past. Only this time, he was the one who was beaten. There was no hope for him. Buck was inexorable. Mercy was a thing reserved for gentler climbs. He maneuvered for the final rush, 
The circle had tightened till he could feel the breaths of the huskies on his flanks. He could see them, beyond spits and to either side, half crouching for the spring, their eyes fixed upon him. A pause seemed to fall. Every animal was motionless, as though turned to stone. Only spits quivered and bristled as he staggered back and forth, snarling with horrible menace, as though to frighten off impending death. Then Buck sprang in and out. But while he was in, shoulder at last squarely met shoulder. The dark circle became a dot on the moon-flooded snow as Spitz disappeared from view. Buck stood and looked on, the successful champion, the dominant primordial beast who had made his kill and found it good. good that concludes chapter three of jack london's call of the wild thank you for joining us at public domain playhouse come back next time and join us for chapter four who has won to mastership i am your host and narrator bart benny your guide to the works of antiquity and the best audible art possible Thank you for joining us. Come back next time. Until then, we will see you on the shelves.